Okay, y'all. Uh, it's been a while. I've, um, Isaiah 55, I, you realize we were in something written by John, I think starting in 2018, with only a break for the minor prophets during a quarantine. So John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, Revelation. And um, there was a lot of ways to follow up on that and recap that. But while I was in Revelation, I kept finding myself in Isaiah a lot, but Isaiah 55 in particular. And um, so I thought this is just a good way to follow up before we move on to something completely different. And... um, One of the things that John does to you because he's, like in the Gospels, he's so different. There is a level of, um, some people have called it mysticism. There's just this level of um, experience. I don't don't know what other you, I keep coming back to that word there. Um, So many different types of metaphors and stuff, vine and branch, that sort of thing. Um, I kept returning to that, and it's, John is one of those guys that every time I open, I think um, that I'm never getting enough, you know, like there's got to be more here that I'm just not getting. So I want to introduce Isaiah 55 with a story that I've told about 250 times. If you've heard it 150 of those times, this will take a few minutes. You're free to go get something to drink or run to the bathroom. Um, And I didn't bring my Reno, so Karen and I are going to cooperate here for just a second. So you can go ahead and start to the first slide. Um, This is a story about my grandfather, and um, this was in Knoxville, 1970-71, I believe. Um, And in 1971, um, Billy Graham came to Knoxville, Tennessee, to Nayland Stadium, where the Tennessee volunteers play football. And um, he was there for a week, and... um, it was a big, big deal. You can see it's a pretty packed house. Um, if you flip to the next screen, you'll you'll see why part of it was a big deal. Um, Billy Graham made a decision that week that he would go on to regret for the rest of his life. He invited Richard Nixon to be on the stage with him. Um, something that my other grandfather that's not in this story reminded me of in the very last thing he told me before he died. But that's a different story. Um, never made that connection until just now Um, um, so Richard Nixon is there it's 71 Um, the Vietnam War is happening Um, if you go to the next slide you'll you'll see at this point it was the largest choir ever assembled all those people in white shirts going around the end Um, it was a 5,000 member choir um, so if you can imagine that many voices being led by, uh, was it George Beverly Shea and whoever the other music dude was? Any names? Anybody? No? Okay, that's fine. You can flip again. But, but you can see what he did. He gave Richard Nixon a microphone and let him speak. At the same time, I, I said Jesus was there. No, that's not Jesus. That's a hippie. Um, and that's, they actually came into the stadium and protested. While Nixon was speaking, they stood up with their signs 
that said, Thou shalt not kill, and yelled at him while he was trying to speak. Um, so you've got Richard Nixon trying to talk, protesters yelling. You can go to another slide. I think I may have um, some more. Oops, that one was twice. Yeah, so you can see this happening. So it's in the middle of a college campus. You've got college students. They're yelling at Nixon. Nixon's trying to speak. And this next slide, I think, will maybe um, say it all. This is the classic Nixon pose. But I just think this is, is fascinating because it's everything is here. You've got, um, this, at the very top, it says Vols, volunteers. Under that, it says, I'm the truth, the life, and the way. Very strange. Under that, you've got the choir. Under that, you've got Nixon. If you look closely, you'll see secret servicemen guarding him. And then you see Billy Graham about to preach the gospel, knowing that in the audience there are people yelling at him, thou shalt not kill, and they're against the war. What a crazy, crazy time. Now, um, you go to the next slide. There was another night when somebody else was there who was not Richard Nixon. He was Johnny Cash. Amen. Can I, can I get an amen from anybody on Johnny Cash? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, a quick word about my grandfather. My grandfather was an independent, fundamental, King James-only Baptist. Um, super duper traditional. Um, he came to hear my first sermon, and the first words out of his mouth were, why didn't you use the King James? Not good sermon, not I'm proud of you, nothing, but why didn't you use the King James Bible? Thank you, Grandpa. Um, lots of rules, wonderful man, love him, cherish his memory, but super, this rules for everything. Um, rules for what you wear, didn't wear, but um, certain groups of people he did not care for. One of those groups were hippies because hippies were communist and they had long hair and they smoked pot and they went to Woodstock and um, they were undermining our society. So men couldn't have hair over the collar, men couldn't have beards, women couldn't wear jeans um, or shorts. Nobody could wear shorts. And um, just, just so many rules and so many things you couldn't do so that you didn't look like a hippie. And most importantly, independent, fundamental, King James-only Baptist hated Billy Graham because they believed that the Pope was the Antichrist, and when Billy Graham would go to other countries, he would cooperate with Catholics. And if you cooperate with Catholics, cooperate with the Antichrist, therefore we hate Billy Graham. So when Billy Graham came to Knoxville, all the independent Baptist churches in East Tennessee planned services so none of their people would go. They were afraid their people would go hear him. And so they all planned services. Um, yeah, great times. So, but my grandfather was curious. So he went on Johnny Cash night. <laughs> so my grandfather, um, he had one leg, so he don't know how this is going to work. So he's driving up thousands of people. I mean, this, this stadium held... I think at the time, 70 or 80,000 people, I don't know. Thousands of people everywhere, and he doesn't know how he's going to park. He doesn't know how he's going to do this. A Billy Graham volunteer spots his, his handicapped sticker, waves him in, and if you know how a football stadium, waves him right under the stadium, right next to a tunnel, walks him to his seat, 30 yards, sits him down. He's there. So he's already impressed. These people are good. Sits him down. He hears Johnny Cash sing. He hears John, Billy Graham preach the gospel he sees thousands of people go forward to receive Christ, and suddenly my grandfather's 
mind is blown, okay? You can flip to the next slide because this next slide has Johnny Cash, two guys playing guitar with awesome sideburns and hair. So I just had to include that. Um, Okay, so this is the part of the story. My grandfather told me um, in the late 80s, maybe 1990, he told me this story three or four times. So just imagine 15 to 20 years later, he's still telling this story. And here I am 30 years later, still telling this story. And this is the part of the story where he would get tears in his eyes and the part of the story where I get tears in my eyes, okay? So, um, because this shook him up and it changed him. So you know what it's like when a football game's over and everybody leaves at the same time. Billy Graham's done, the service is over, everybody gets still up to leave, and so it's wall-to-wall people, and here's my grandfather with his one leg and his crutch. And he looks over, and there walking right up next to him is, as he describes it, a little hippie girl. And they look at each other and lock eyes. Now, you just imagine whatever a little hippie girl would have looked like. Just picture Woodstock, whatever she was there for. But they turned and looked at each other at the same moment. And before he could break eye contact, he tells the story that her face was just aglow. She was radiant. He said she had the biggest smile and said she had to tell somebody. So she looked at my grandfather and she said, I came to see Johnny Cash, but I met Jesus. And like, you're the first person I get to tell. And I'm so excited I can't stand it. And my grandfather was blown away because that would have been comparable to to Jesus touching a leper, right? To healing a leper. Like, a hippie met Jesus. (laughs) What in the world? Right? And and then he's going to have to process the fact that all of his independent, fundamental, Baptist, King James only friends are going to want to know what he was doing at Billy Graham, and he's going to tell them, well, the hippie girl got saved, and so did a thousand other people. And he has got a lot to figure out, right? But he remembered that bright and shining face for the rest of his life. And I will never forget him telling that story to me three or four times. But the thing that, that makes me use that story to introduce, you can get that off of there. Everybody will look at instant of me. Um... um the, the reason I use that story to introduce Isaiah 55 is, is the line that I can't get over. And I've thought about this story every day for, for months. Um, you know, Billy Graham used to use the, the line, a personal relationship with Jesus. He, he said that all the time, a personal relationship with Jesus. And um, in other words, it wasn't secondhand. It was like you and Jesus. Um, and it was real. And it just strikes me how real that would have been to the little hippie girl, as my grandfather called her. Um, I came to see Johnny Cash, but I met Jesus. Like, the Jesus I met is just as real as the Johnny Cash I saw singing on stage. Like, I met him. He was here. Did you see him? He wasn't the guy with the thing. He was here. He was here. Like, it was just that real. And so I just, I can't get over that. Um, Because, like, open your Bible anywhere. Like I said, John, any of the John, Revelation, Isaiah 55 for us this month. 
Um, the metaphors, the imagery that Isaiah uses are so personal. They are experiential to a degree that you practically cannot explain. And, and I, I, I open Isaiah 55 after a month away with lots of honestly difficult experience over the last two months. Uh, that's been kind of like a bit of a school for me. Um, with a bit of fear and trembling for two reasons, and I'll just throw this out there. Maybe I'll preach on these two things someday, but one sentence for each of them. Um, <clears throat> number one, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. We tend to think a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another. Jesus said a hypocrite is someone who says one thing but believes another. And that scares me to death because I say a lot. <laughs> so when James says those of you who teach are going to be <laughs> judge, you know, why? Because you say a lot and you best believe what you say. Don't just be saying stuff if you really don't believe it. And so now we come to Isaiah 55 and it's, it's frightening, really, um, because there's these invitations from this God that we read about earlier who is just beyond our ability to, to rein in. And this morning and next week, <coughs> excuse me, will be the invitations. And then the, the three weeks, the two weeks after that will just be, look who this is that is inviting us. He is more than you can get your brain around. And that'll be our one month. He is infathomably, incomprehensibly great and his invitation is to experience him at a level you can't get around. And it's important to know where this is coming from. And I, I want to say this briefly, but I want to make sure you get it. Because Isaiah is writing to people who are going to be judged. <laughs> Judgment's on the way. And God has said to the people through Isaiah, they're not going to turn this around. It's coming. Um, <clears throat> it's happening. I've prepared the people to come. Um, and, and if you read through, you see some of the reasons why they, they were judged. They had, they had, God's people had become idolaters, and they had even incorporated idolatry into their temple worship, meaning that they had become more and more and more like the nations around them. They had incorporated other gods, other people's gods into their worship, um, in many ways, they were still faithful, if you will, to go to temple and do the temple stuff. But while being idolatrous, they were very unjust in how they treated vulnerable people, the widows, the orphans, uh, the, the people coming in from other countries, the poor. Um, they, were, they treated them very unjustly. You can just skip up a couple of chapters. There's a chapter there, Isaiah 58, that Alan preached on one time. It's all about that. Um, so... In many ways, when you read Isaiah, and Isaiah is saying judgment's coming, the people would often respond with, but we go to temple. We offer sacrifices. We do all the stuff. And God says through Isaiah, yeah, and I'm kind of sick of your stuff. Just don't do it. It'd be better if you didn't. Um, and then, what did they do? This is kind of the kicker. When they realized 
the bad guys were coming as the hand of God's judgment, instead of falling on their faces before God, they said, has anybody talked to Egypt? Maybe Egypt will come help us. In other words, let's get some people who are even more pagan than we are, and maybe they'll help us get out of this, right? Um, And God was just like, if God could do this, he did that, yeah. Um, And so there's this interesting section that's just amazing, really, and we saw this in all the minor prophets, so this is kind of told in a major prophet way, if you will. Um, It's like this big announcement of judgment, but then there's this, this hopeful section where the, there's these, these several chapters about this, this glory of this future kingdom that's coming, and then these chapters about this suffering servant. You know Isaiah 53, um, this, this one who will bear our sins like the, the sheep have gone astray and he takes on our sin. They're all there, and then there's this invitation in chapter 55, and we're just going to cover the first five verses of this invitation. Um, I've divided this chapter into four parts, um, and so we're just going to pick it up there. It's an invitation, um, oddly enough, to come, to listen, to eat, um, and to see how those are all related together, to find satisfaction in God. And and David preached on... uh, um, I almost said complacency. He did not preach on complacency. He preached on contentment. Those are two very different things. Um, contentment, and there's a lot of this is here, but just finding satisfaction for your soul um, in God. It says, let me just cover the first couple of verses here. Come, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. You have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor? on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. We'll, we'll pick that up there. So do you, do you see the levels there? There's one, two, three, four, four times. Come, 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 come. Come, everyone. That's, that's the qualifications. Um, you got to be thirsty. If you're thirsty, you can come. If you got no money, so you got to be poor. So thirsty and poor. Um, it's kind of difficult so far. Um, this this isn't anything we really want to admit yet, right? Um, if you're, but if you're thirsty and you're you're poor, you've got no money. It's interesting. He says. You who have no money, come buy and eat. How am I going to buy if I have no money? Oh, come on. I'll give you wine and milk, but it'll be wine and milk that you can get without money and without cost. Okay, tell me, tell me more. And he asked this question. It's a two-part question. Why are you spending money on what's not bread, your labor on what is not satisfied? In other words, why are you toiling and laboring all day long and never buying groceries, so to speak? Um, and he says, I, if you come to me, maybe your translation says, I will, I will delight your soul with the richest of fare. So come to me and buy what you can't buy with money, 
Because what you're doing is, is you're laboring and you're buying with money the thing that doesn't satisfy when I offer you something that will satisfy that doesn't cost money. Did that make sense? I hope it made sense. I could say it again, right? You're, you're laboring and laboring and spending and spending to get the thing that doesn't satisfy when I will give you that which satisfies for nothing. But in order to get it, you've got to admit that you're th- poor and you're, you're, you're thirsty and that you, you're going to have to come to me humble and teachable. Did you see the coming and the eating is tied into the word listen? Look at he says in verse 2, he says the word listen twice. And then in verse 3, he says give ear. And then <clears throat> in verse 3, he says listen again. So somehow coming, eating, and listening are all tied together. And so there is in these verses a humble admittance of who we are, a humble teachability, a, hum- a humility that we're going to get from God something we can't purchase or work our, our way to get, and then that he's going to satisfy us in a way that will be free, and we have to admit that it was free because we would much rather work for it, right? And we just kind of have to say, okay, well, I'm nothing, and then you're going to give me something, but I thought I was something working for something, right? And, and there's this whole comparison game that then goes on because whenever you talk about humility, you've got to look around and go, well, I think I'm thirstier. Right, right, I'm sorry, I heard this has popped into my head. Forgive me. I heard this story this week of a rabbi who walks into the synagogue and he thinks the place is empty and he's having a really holy moment with God and he bows down and says, Lord, I am nothing. And the cantor is over in the corner and he's so inspired by this, he comes and kneels by the rabbi and says, Lord, I am nothing. And back in the back corner, the custodian is mopping the floor and he's just really inspired by this. So he drops his mop and he kneels next to the cantor and says, Lord, I am nothing. And the rabbi elbows the cantor and says, look who thinks he's nothing. (laughs) Yeah, so there's... There is in this, and built into our hearts and built into our society, a looking around, right? Like, I feel like I would be satisfied if I had that. Oh, you want me to be humble? Well, I'm probably more humble than them, right? (laughs) We're just kind of messed up that way. Oh, you think you're nothing? Let me tell you how nothing, (laughs) he thinks he's nothing. Oh, no, I'm nothing. I'm probably the humblest guy you ever met. You want to talk about thirsty and poor, right? It's just, it's not built into us to, to, to think that eating and listening can be the same thing because you don't eat with your ears. <laughs> That's strange, isn't it? But if you think of it in terms of taking in, husbands, wives, Are you hearing me? Kids? Kids? Did your mom ever say, are you listening to me? Did did your mom ever explain to you that there's a difference between hearing and listening? Yeah, I know you heard me, but were you listening? Husbands? Okay, I'll just admit I've heard it at at once. (laughs) Once, zero, zero, zero. (laughs) It does no, listen, man, I'll just... 
Anybody younger than me in the room who hasn't learned this lesson yet, it does no good to repeat it back. See, I heard you. You said this. Mistake. Big mistake. That still doesn't mean you were absorbing. You weren't bringing it in, chewing it, swallowing it, and digesting it. That's what eating and drinking are. And so God is not promising put away the good stuff and I'll give you mush, stale bread, and water. He says, I'll, I'll satisfy your soul. Psalm twenty two twenty six. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. Isaiah 1, 19. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Teachable, humble, and then just at a point of dissatisfaction with anything else to where you want, you have to listen. Then you have to listen. So when Moses and then Jesus says, we don't live by bread alone, we live by words. Do you see that? You eat bread, you hold it, you smell it. We take communion with it next week. And then there's words. And we'd kind of think if we just had more and better bread, we'd have more and better satisfaction. And he says, now I'm going to give you some words that you didn't work for or labor for, but then they're going to satisfy your soul if you just be poor and humble and be nothing and listen. And he says, and when that happens, and we're going to get this into this more later, so I won't expound on it a lot. Then I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. You see, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you do not know, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. So there's this tying together here of these, these promises. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion. So you've got these, these promises made to David, the promises made to the people of David. He's bringing these back up again hundreds of years after the promises were made and then he says, I've made David a witness to the peoples. Wait a minute, how can David be a witness to the peoples? He's not even alive anymore. How can David be a ruler and a commander of the peoples? He's dead. Then there's nations that are going to come running to you? But you're being judged. How is this going to happen? You're about to go off into slavery. You're about to be wiped out. The Lord your God is going to endow you with splendor. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of the Lord, for the great is the Holy One of Israel among you. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty in his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forest and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. So there's this picture all throughout Isaiah of this glorious redemption that takes place in this nation, and, and God pictures as, as if it's happened, but it's happening, and this goes all the way back to Abraham. Remember what he told Abraham? Hey, Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And guess what? I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And it was always the intention that Israel would be a light to the nations, that other nations would look at Israel and say, oh, that's what it's like to have a good, compassionate, faithful God who keeps his promises 
we want a God like that. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That was, that's the picture God gave, that all these people coming and going, we want some of that, and the word of the Lord coming out from Zion. Isaiah 49, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles to the nation that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing just to be thinking of this one group of people. It's going to be the nations. So do you see the connection here? If this group of people would be satisfied, you would get with me and stop laboring for all these things you think will satisfy you, it don't. But if you just come and just listen, take it what I'm saying, obey me, then you get to see what it's like for all the nations to look at you and go, I want that God, right? But when Israel conformed to the nations around them, the nations around them were not impressed. The nations were not drawn to the God of Israel when Israel was not personally, deeply satisfied with their God. So he goes all the way back and says, listen, I've been keeping a promise I made to David about his throne being forever and his being about the nations. We saw this in Revelation, didn't we? So we know it's going to happen. We read the end already. Jesus Christ called what? The faithful witness. What did verse 4 say? I've made him a witness to the peoples. He's already bleeding this over from David to David in all caps, bold, italics, underline. The David, which we've seen. The lion, the lamb, the son of David, every nation, tribe, people, language. It's going to happen. and It all ties together. Do you see how this all comes together? It's from our personal thirsting and hungering and humility and teachability, our own dissatisfaction with the world to find satisfaction in the word of God and in, in what he gives us. Then on to the bigger kingdom that's here, but the kingdom that's coming. So it's my own personal relationship and experience and eating of what God has to give, Right? It's not just the ritual, not just the going to church, not just the reading of my Bible, but it's making that a meal. It's a meal. It's eating. It's digesting. Thirsty for it. It just, it just amazes me that I could turn on my television or just go down the road and hear, hear a version taught and hear a preacher say, you know what will make this world stand up and take notice to Jesus when you've got more and better stuff than they do. So if you've got the right kind of faith, the kind of faith that pleases God, God wants you to have more and more of those things. I just, oh, I quit this all the time in my brain because it, it just bugs me and I don't know why I've let this take up space, but it's flipping on the TV one night and hearing this big Miley face say, today you're working that machine in the factory. Next week you'll own that factory. Okay, I'm not against Christians owning factories. Somebody's got to own the factory, right? But um, my word, 
Can I be satisfied without owning the factory? Does faith ensure that it's mine, right? And could it be that when I make that kind of promise, what I'm doing is I'm promising people more and more of the things that will leave their soul empty and dissatisfied. God wants you to have more faith so he can give you more of everything unbelievers have discovered already don't satisfy them. It's madness. People naturally love to set their hearts on things, naturally love to store up their treasures on earth. That is a purely natural appeal. So I'm making a supernatural appeal to you today to be satisfied in the promises of God and satisfied with what he gives for free and let everything else just be eating that. The nations are drawn to God when we're more satisfied in him than we are in our stuff. That's why when Jesus comes along, what does he say? I'm the bread of life. I'm the water. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does he say to the woman at the well? Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to an eternal life. The last day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is the last thing we said in Revelation. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water with, of life without cost. John 6, 27, don't work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Listen, the words that I've spoken to you are full of spirit and life. The words are full of spirit and life. I have, um, I have a couple of unbelieving friends that I've been sharing the gospel with for a long time. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail. One of them has, I'll just say this, lives in probably the nicest neighborhood, probably in a six or seven mile radius of here. Enormous house on a double lot in a huge neighborhood. And he should have retired 10 years ago. And this is what he says to me. I'm tired. I don't want to work anymore. But I don't want to lower my standard of living. Your standard of living's pretty high. You could lower it a notch. Um, so he says that to me, and I'm just kind of taken aback by that. Then another friend who's younger than me, who just can't get enough. He, just, he can't get enough. He's always starting a new business, always buying another house, um, always buying more land, always building another house. Just lives by himself, and he's always wanting a bigger house. He just can't get enough, and he's never satisfied. And I remember they were both standing there one day, and um, I talked to them about contentment. What do you guys think about contentment? Contentment? No. What? You, can't ever, you can't ever be content. You can never be satisfied. Even if you're tired... Like, you know what I mean? Do you see how this works? It's just this treadmill. You can never get off. So you have this sentence where you go, I can be satisfied when I have blank. I will be satisfied when I have enough blank. And it's, sometimes it's not things. Sometimes when I have enough power, 
um, when I have enough money, when I have enough of this, when I have enough of that, when I get to this level of this, then satisfaction will, will happen. I, I have another friend. I almost, well, I haven't been here a month, so you guys will forgive me. But um, he keeps a picture, an 8 by 10 picture of a former president on a bar in his kitchen. Previous president, our last previous president. Keeps it on, it's 8 by 10 picture on his, on his bar. You walk into his house, he's got teenage kids and all their friends come over. And he shows them his picture of the president on the bar in his house. And um, if anybody says anything about it, he's ready to fight him. He's, he's, he's just always ready to fight. Like, oh, man, we're going to fight. And um, he's already talking about the 2024 election. I, said, no, I just asked him, I said, okay, let's imagine everybody in 2024 that you think should win wins. They all win. Every one of them, all across the country, they all win. And then let's imagine in 2025 at the state level, everybody wins. Every governor you think should win wins. And then the next year, Every city council election goes the way you think it should go. And after that, every school board election goes the way you think it should go. After that, every PTA in America is exactly the way you think it should be. What happens next? The kingdom of God is here, obviously. <laughs> Well, I understand why you're so angry then. By golly, keep fighting. Right? And don't hear me saying stay away. I'm simply saying if something like that happens, has to go in your blank before you can get to the satisfaction part, right? We can't outworld the world. <laughs> and so if you're thirsty, admit it. If you're tired of trying to find satisfaction in what money can buy or power can get, admit it. If you can't afford what you think will satisfy, that's a great thing to admit. <laughs> and then you say, okay, God, I'm going to put myself in a posture of listening. And I'm going to listen. And I'm not just going to hear. I'm going to listen, listen. I'm going to take it in. That you speak to me in such a way that you satisfy me. You see, you see why I started out in fear and trembling? Because this is stuff where it's like, you just don't open up your Bible all the time and have this happen to you, do you? You don't. You just don't, you don't just put down your Bible in the morning and go, whew, man, I am full. I can't stand another word. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just don't feel like that often. Ah, but boy, wouldn't it? Can you imagine the testimony that that is? He said, that's the testimony that the nations go, oh, that's where the splendor and the glory is. I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to that. Not when we're just doing a bad version of the world. Will you pray with me as I pray for you? Lord, I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters. I thank you, God, for... Um, I think especially for the men who have, have capably stood and preached your word. Um, to these dear people the last few weeks. Um, I say it over and over again. We don't have a B team here. We just got an A team. And they feed us your word week after week. And thank you for the men who've done that. And thank you for just a book that when we open it, it's like 
this just has to be preached. This is too good to, to hold in. And thank you, God, um, that we don't live by bread alone. Lord, if, if you would just convince us of that in this moment, convince us of that. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, if you would just um, make us a people who, who learn to eat, And Lord, we know that um, a baby starts, I know you're even, your word says this, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. Um, I pray that you would create that kind of craving in us and that our soul would find life and that we would come to you and live and that we would see every fake alternative this world has to offer and we would see all the ways that we buy it. Because we buy it, I buy it. And Lord, I know that my own heart fills in the blank with so much stuff. I'll be satisfied if I get this or when I get here or when I get there or when I do this or when I'm able to do that. No, Lord, no. I pray, God, that for all of us, that you would be bread. Jesus, you're the bread of life. Jesus, you're the water of life. I just go back to those words. I go back to the, the beaming face of the little hippie girl who met Jesus. I pray that it truly would be a personal, personal thing, as personal as bread and water. And may it be something we can't hold in. In Jesus' name. We pray.